0: to Wyoming, My 307. My name is Carla Mowell, and as a history buff, today's episode was really, really interesting to research. We're going to look at World War II in Wyoming. Now, the idea for this episode sprung from a story that I'd heard on NPR years ago about a time that the Japanese bombed Thermopolis. Hmm. I wish my dad were still alive to ask him if he even remembers that. He grew up in Grable, Wyoming, which is about an hour from Thermopolis, and his grandparents lived in the area that I think that the bomb landed. It was actually a paper-like balloon that was launched from Japan and using Pacific currents to cross the ocean over 6,000 miles. The goal was for it to land, self-detonate, and create forest fires and havoc. You're just going to have to check out the NPR story for more details, and I do have it linked. Dad was nine years old when his two brothers went to war. His oldest brother, my Uncle Vernon, he joined the Navy. He did that the day after Pearl Harbor was bombed. Now, he died when I was an infant, but I'd love to ask him if he chose the Navy because of Pearl Harbor Or if it was just because he grew up in landlocked Wyoming and being on the water sounded cool to him. I'm thinking the latter because a lot of Wyoming guys ended up joining the Navy. Dad's other brother, my Uncle Dale, he was barely 17 and just a little too young to join the Navy. So he waited a few months and worked on getting permission from Grandma. Well, the way he did that was by forging her signature. I have a picture of this mischievous uncle in his uniform on the website. Now, we know this same story was being played out across America, and later today I have a guest who's actually making a documentary about one Wyoming soldier's World War II story. But first, the dot on the map segment. Today, instead of one dot, we're going to take a quick virtual tour of some places across Wyoming that have a connection to World War II history. Our virtual tour loops around the state, and I'll post a map of that route on the show notes so that you can not only follow along, but hopefully someday do the tour yourself. We start in Cheyenne. It's at the crossroads of two major interstate highways, I-25 and I-80. Cheyenne boasts the Military Memorial Museum, which is actually part of the Nelson Museum of the West, and that's another place that is very well worth visiting. My favorite floor was down in the basement, where you learn the story of not only the lawmen, but the outlaws who kept them very, very busy in the early days of Wyoming. I plan to share more about that story in a future episode. The Military Museum was actually started as a collection of uniforms When the horse cavalry was disbanded in 1943, all of that stuff just came up for sale. Unfortunately for us, the museum was under renovation when we stopped by, but we were very kindly allowed to have a little sneak peek. We got to see the collection of uniforms and some other military equipment, and it's all organized chronologically, so through the lens of the uniforms, you walk away with an extensive review of the changes over time in technology, in style, but also insight into the various campaigns. So I'm going to have to go back and visit them when the updates are completed. Now travel north to Douglas, just a couple of hours from Cheyenne, and Douglas is home to one of two large World War II POW camps in Wyoming. Now, you might think, why Douglas? Well, it's not that unique. There were actually over 500 POW camps across the country, plus 175 branch camps, so there was probably one pretty close to where you live now, especially if you don't live along coastal areas, if you live in the interior of the country. All of the POW camps were in the interior. Most of the camps were in the south, but also wherever labor was needed, and in Wyoming that need was for agriculture and timber industries. At its peak, Camp Douglas housed up to 3,000 European prisoners. In Douglas today, the Officers Club is the only one still standing, and they've taken that building and repurposed it into a museum showing the life of prisoners of war there. It has a wonderful mural, and it was done by Italian POWs in 1944. Wyoming author Cheryl O'Brien has actually written a book, World War II POW Camps in Wyoming, and she goes into a lot of detail on the importance of this site and also people's stories, both from the prisoner and the community perspective. And I'm super proud to say that I will actually have a bonus interview of Cheryl O'Brien so we can learn a lot more about the POW camp, so stay tuned for that. Keep traveling north until you get to Casper. There you can see the Wyoming Veterans Memorial Museum. It's really easy to find. It's on the same campus as the airport, just north of Casper, and it's where the original Casper Army Air Base was. So where the the museum in Cheyenne tells the big picture story through a collection of uniforms, the Veterans Memorial Museum is much more intimate. It shows us specific Wyoming veterans' experiences dating back from the Spanish-American War to the recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. This whole collection is housed in the old servicemen's club. They use photos, uniforms, video, and personal effects as well as spoils of war to tell those individual veterans' stories. Like the POW Museum, there are murals at this museum that you just have to see. They were done by three American servicemen. They were stationed at the Casper Army Air Base in 1943. The lead artist, Corporal Leon Tibbetts, was an artist from New Hampshire, and it really shows. Now, 20,000 servicemen trained at the base over the course of the war. They came from all over the U.S., and they did their training and then were posted to either other bases or sent overseas. Tebbets wanted to create a visual history lesson so that people from all over the U.S. would learn a little bit about Wyoming and Wyoming history before they left. Tebbets and his team started with Shoshone Legends and worked their way chronologically through Wyoming history up to the establishment of the air base. I have a link in the show notes with more details as well as that first and last image of the Shoshone legends and the establishment of the air base. Now if you were listening closely you caught the fact that the POW murals in Douglas and the Casper murals were both done in 1943. I've actually helped with a mural before and it's pretty intense work. I can just imagine both teams, the Italians in Douglas, and the Americans in Casper, planning and working out the details of these complex paintings—you know, their their art—a little oasis of creativity during a global time of crisis—and I'm just amazed by that, that it happened simultaneously. And I have to wonder if they even knew each other existed. So keep going north to Buffalo, Wyoming, and get yourself to the Jim Gatchell Memorial Museum. This museum has a lot about the local history and culture of Buffalo, and it also includes a display on the World War II bomber plane that crashed in August of 1943. It went down in the Bighorn National Forest outside of Buffalo on what is now called Bomber Mountain. On that day, local ranchers saw a big fireball in the sky, and later other witnesses called in a forest fire. It wasn't until the firefighters arrived at the scene that they realized that there had been a crash and that the 11 man crew had perished. The investigation afterwards found that the plane had veered far off course, and the museum display tells the story of the crash, how it was found, and it includes artifacts like photos of the servicemen, the stories of each of the 11, and even parts of the plane. Just the month prior, in June of 1943, another bomber had disappeared in the area. This one was coming from Grand Island, Nebraska, and had last been heard from over Powder River, Wyoming, and then communication was lost, and it was presumed that they crashed. So over that summer, the Utah Mountain and Ski Corps, they searched the whole area, the Wind River Mountains, the Absaroka Mountains, the Bighorn Mountains, to no avail. Two whole years later, in August of 1945, two cowboys saw something big and shiny on the skyline. So during prior searches, the plane had blended into the surrounding area, but now that the paint on the plane had started to weather, the wreckage glinted in the sun and stood out much more. The investigation that followed found that this plane had also veered off course, not knowing exactly where they were, they were flying 50 to 100 feet lower than they needed to clear the mountain, and again, all 11 crew perished. But one seems to have survived for an unknown amount of time. His body was found sitting against a tree with his Bible open at his side and his billfold open to pictures of his family. Whew. From Buffalo, you will cross the Bighorn Mountains on a beautiful scenic drive to Graybull, which I talked a lot about Grable on episode one, so go back and listen to that. But just outside of town is the Museum of Flight and Aerial Firefighting. There you can get out and walk around a boneyard of old planes, including several World War II models. I don't know about you, but I enjoy visiting cemeteries, and one that's definitely worth a visit is the cemetery just outside of Grable. In the veteran section where my dad is buried, they have built a memorial to Donald Rule. He was awarded the Medal of Honor for his bravery at Iwo Jima. If you follow military tradition, you can leave a coin on his headstone to let his family know that you stopped by to pay your respect. According to that tradition, you leave a penny to show that you visited, a nickel if you went to boot camp together, a dime if you served together in any capacity, or a quarter if you were there when they died. And now on to Powell to hear a very different part of the World War II story, Heart Mountain, a lovely sounding name for a prison camp where Japanese Americans were brought from other parts of the U.S. and unjustly imprisoned because of their ancestry. The exhibit there tells the story of the Japanese Americans who were held there, as well as all the historical background on how this tragedy came to be. There are photos artifacts, and oral histories to show what life was like at the internment camp. Exhibits also explore issues of race and social justice in America, and this is something that we need to revisit now more than ever. Former Secretary of Transportation Norm Mineta and retired U.S. Senator from Wyoming, Alan Simpson, they serve together as honorary advisors to this foundation. They actually met as Boy Scouts on opposite ends of the barbed wire fence surrounding the Heart Mountain compound. And that story just chokes me up. Whew. Well, we have one more stop before we close our loop, and I'm going to send you the long way. You might as well check out Yellowstone and the Grand Tetons while you're in the neighborhood. So go through that, and then the last stop is Dubois. And I've been practicing saying Dubois and not Dubois because I want to sound like I'm actually from Wyoming. Dubois is home to the brand new National Museum of Military Vehicles. It's so new that it was slated to open in May of 2020, but unfortunately, like many things, that's been postponed for now due to the pandemic. So I haven't visited yet, but I will when it opens, and I'll let you know when I do. So it's time to fully close the loop and head back to Casper, I highly recommend that you celebrate by having a drink at the Backwards Distillery in Casper. They make creative and amazing drinks from liquor that they themselves have distilled, and included in that is the World War II classic Gin Fizz, so have one for me. One town I didn't mention was Rock Springs, Wyoming, and that's where my guest Mark Pedry is from. He's a Wyoming and LA-based filmmaker who is working on a documentary about a very special World War II veteran from Wyoming who's also his grandpa. So let's have a listen to that conversation. Well, everyone, I'm really excited to introduce a special guest that we have today, Mark Pedry, and he has a super cool project going on that overlaps with my project of telling stories of Wyoming and that is about a story that he discovered about his grandfather's experience in World War II, and his grandfather was from Wyoming. So I'd like to welcome you, Mark, and thank you in advance for sharing your family story with us.
1: Yeah, thanks, Carl. I'm excited to be uh, talking to you and other folks from Wyoming, people that are interested in Wyoming. Uh, It's something that I'm passionate about. I was born and raised in Rock Springs, so kind of down in the southwest corner of the state, and that's where uh, my grandpa, made his life after his parents immigrated from Italy. So we have a lot of history in that area. And it wasn't until this project about World War II and about my grandpa's experience that I really started to dig into that history. For the last two years, it's been completely about trying to uncover more pieces of his story. And we're finally getting to the point where I think kind of have a handle on it. At least now I have a good idea of kind of what his journey was coming from Rock Springs into basic training and then throughout the war. Uh, I mentioned that I grew up born and raised in Rock Springs, and uh, a huge part of my childhood was uh, my grandpa lived across the street, and he also managed a mobile home park. So um, I spent every summer, every day after school, during the school year, working with him. We've tried to pinpoint what age we started. It was my cousin, my brother, and I. And we think maybe 10 years old is when we started, but it was basically like as soon as we could you know, hold a paintbrush and... Uh, operate a screwdriver he had us doing little odd jobs with him and we spent you know basically that 10 years some of the most meaningful years of our lives with him so in a lot of ways you know he was kind of the most important person in my childhood growing up and you know as you're becoming a man and learning about the world he was the the central figure in a lot of that I thought I knew him you know spending that much time with somebody and i had always known that he was in the war he um had a couple medals that he would give us to take to school for show and tell. And that was pretty much the extent of it. Then actually 10 years after he passed away, his house was still there. You know, we hadn't really figured out what we wanted to do with it. Um, And since then I had moved to Los Angeles because I was uh, working in documentary film. And when I would come back, I would stay at his house. And this one particular time I decided to just kind of look around and, um, because, you know, his things were still there. His shoes were still kind of by the bed and pulled back the the covers to get into the bed. There was a large, like a butcher knife between the mattress and the bed frame. It caused curiosity and intrigue to look elsewhere and to start to be like, you know what? Maybe there's something about this man that I didn't know. And that's when I went into his office and found what then became, I guess, the catalyst for this whole experience, which was uh, a relatively unorganized compilation of documents, photos, letters, scraps, you know, a matchbook from a prisoner of war camp in Germany, uh, some newspaper articles. And I just stayed up the entire night poring over this stuff because it was like I was meeting this man for the first time who had had such a profound impact on me. But it was a version of him that, you know, I really had no connection to.
2: I'm sure you had a million questions that came to mind at that point.
1: Yeah, I stayed up the entire night. The next day, I told uh, Carrie, my fiance, and also producing partner, you know, this, you wouldn't believe this stuff that I found. And I kind of went through what I thought was the story to her, and we were both taken by it. But we didn't know what to do. We thought, well, we need to preserve it, so let's just scan all the documents. You know, it just makes sense anytime you find something valuable like this, you have to... Preserve it because a lot of this you'd be pulling pages of a newspaper and it was almost disintegrating in your hands. You know, I started asking family members, my dad, his two brothers, and we quickly realized that this story was basically on the brink of extinction. So that's when we'd made the decision to drop everything and really dedicate ourselves fully to learning and trying to understand his story. So that's when we moved into his house. And started basically physically putting together a narrative of you know what do you think happened to him over there what were the different camps that he was at uh, how did he get captured who are the people that he knew because in these photos you know he was standing with these people and uh, you know he was my age or even a little bit younger I'm 32 so he was he was much younger he's 10 years younger and I started to get to know the people and reading the backs of the photos and you know you start to learn their names and feel like. They were your friend too. And I just had to know what happened to all of them because these were people he never mentioned.
0: And then you took it on the road, right? You and your fiance
2: yeah.
0: rode the bike through Europe trying to recreate his movement across Europe. Tell us about so the
1: first step was in Wyoming and uh, we kind of got as far as we could physically get there. And I think we we didn't really expect it to turn into something this big. But we soon realized that each one of these clues was a piece of something much greater. And when we moved from Los Angeles to Wyoming, just having that sense of place informed the experience of of learning about him so much more. And that's when we realized that, okay, now we need to we need to go to where he was captured. We made the decision to take the journey on bicycle and, you know, we're biking through like rural Germany trying to connect with locals, trying to just, you know, learn how this place is and and connect with him through these places. And some of them are totally transformed. Uh, and then others, there's, you know, a significant, uh, you know, memorial or one of the camps, in fact, is they call it, it's in a state of controlled decay where they're preserving it, but they're also letting it kind of, uh, you know, the time take its toll. The, you know, the memories of the people that were here, they're also in a state of controlled decay and it, it's constantly changing. And, and if we don't take a piece of that and try to preserve it, then eventually, you know, everything just kind of turns to dust and you it gets lost.
0: Well, your your grandfather's generation was a little bit older than my dad. My dad's older brothers went to World War Two. My dad went to Korea. And you know, there's so many stories they have to tell, but you figure like if they wanted to tell you, they would tell. But then when you lose them, you lose the opportunity to even ask. So how would you encourage people to try and get some of those family stories down?
1: One thing that we've learned in doing this project, you know, we've talked to a lot of vets from World War II, people like myself that had a a relative that they were very close to that they didn't Feel they were able ever to approach to talk about these things, and you start to explore these these stories and these um, situations, and that's when you realize that it's different for every single person. And I think being open and curious to their specific experience and focusing on that is what's allowed people to to help open up to us. And you know, I'm very open when I'm talking to somebody about this, and you know, I'm not trying to compare this to anybody's experience. I'm just really curious to hear what your perspective was, what your experience was, and, you know, just how that has affected you throughout your life.
0: What did you learn about your grandpa that then kind of gave you a little more insight looking back on him? Like, I'm going to give you an example. When I was probably a teenager, I learned that my dad's youngest sister had died in a fire, and it was very traumatic. He was a witness to that. But I didn't know that growing up. When I found that out about my dad, I realized that he would just snap directly into anger if you were, quote-unquote, playing with matches or, you know, messing around with a candle. (laughs) Just he would not have that. And I always felt like that was such an overreaction for somebody who was so calm by nature. And then when I found out that his little sister had died in front of him, it's like okay, that makes sense now. Altered his perspective for the rest of his life. Yeah. Is there, is there anything large or small like that that you learned that kind of helped you understand your grandfather better?
1: I mean, I think the one of the biggest themes was the theme of work. And everyone we talked to, they, they you'd ask him, you know, who was Sylvia? What was he like? And they would always just say, well, you know, he he didn't really say too much. He wasn't a storyteller. He was very content with uh silence sitting on his porch and very noticing the simple things um i guess people would call it mindful now he was extremely mindful but he enjoyed you know like listening to the wind blow uh watching the snowfall things like that and work those were kind of his two main things i think i just learned what that work meant to him one of the things was he just found peace in it he found peace in this this day-to-day, I guess, routine of, of putting yourself into something and working towards whatever that goal is to kind of avoid having to revisit some of this other stuff. And I think that's also what it comes down to when he was sitting on the porch, he would notice these things in a, in a way, almost a defense mechanism, because, you know, if, if you sat too long with your thoughts, there was always this version that would come back to this experience that, um, he had in world war ii and it was much much more traumatic than he ever let on
2: right and that work ethic
0: is such a good match with wyoming in general you know that's that's a thing that is so valued here the ability to really just
2: work hard just physical labor you know whether it's ranch work or digging ditches all of that hard work that is something that also played well here in wyoming
1: unfortunate thing there was a lot of people that he served with that we followed up on you know from the photos and their outlet wasn't as I mean I guess you could argue work could be pushed to an extreme and it's not as good but like he didn't die of alcoholism you know like some of his friends did who died very young you know they died in the 70s and 80s as young men who never were able to come out of that experience where for him his outlet was work and he lived to 87 as a result and worked to the his last day. We asked him what he wanted to do. And he said, let's take a ride through the mobile home park, you know, to see what needs to be done. And so for him, it was very much something that it was kind of a coping mechanism, a comfort.
0: That's some of his experience in the war. What was his experience growing up in Wyoming? Like, did he ever talk about that?
1: His experience was interesting. I mentioned his parents immigrated from Italy and there was a pretty uh prevalent population of italians from his tiny little town in italy that lived in rock springs and they were there primarily for the coal mines so uh when he uh he was actually born in rock springs and um but he moved away at a young age because of the boom and bust economy there he spent a lot of his childhood actually in minnesota in the iron range and as soon as he graduated high school he jumped on a train, a freight train, so not even a passenger train, and made his way back to Rock Springs because his a lot of his family was still there. He had some cousins and an uncle, and his uncle basically said, "If yeah, if you can get back to Rock Springs, there's work here. You can live with me. So he jumped on the train and got off in Rock Springs and then worked in the coal mine with his uncle, and they lived in a house just with a bunch of other Italians and uh, you know cousins and friends there was a lot of community and camaraderie in the uh, the sense that you know all the photos from that time they're always like digging the foundation to a, a house by hand you know because everybody would pitch in and then the people that would live in that house you know it'd be friends and family and they would all cook for each other and so his experience there was you just part of a community and that kind of carried out through his whole life because when i met him like every di- every weekend, every day, there was always somebody that needed help with something. And that's not really common in, in a lot of other places, which I think is pretty pretty unique thing about Wyoming.
0: Well, you haven't told us your grandfather's name. So why don't you tell us just a little bit about the story of, I know he was in the hospital. Mm-hmm. He was a prisoner of war, but did you kind of, were you able to fill some gaps?
1: Yeah. So um, my grandpa, Silvio, he was uh, in the... 95th infantry um which was an infantry division created specifically with the goal of training average people and and making them into soldiers so it was part of Patton's general Patton's third army they called it and so he was a part of this group where it was, it was very rigorous training i mean they trained for uh 3 years so he was drafted in 1941 and then um uh, finally deployed after D day in 1944 he landed at normandy but it was months after d-day so at that point it was essentially a port where they were bringing supplies and his first job was a truck driver where he was driving supplies from the beaches of normandy to the front which was close to the german french border the allies raced across france so fast that they ran out of supplies they were out of fuel then they had to bring in uh, additional people which was that's what Sylvia was a part of to resupply the front and in doing that then they reached this town called Metz France and Metz was kind of a notorious uh location in Europe because it had really never been taken by force in recent history i mean the, the last time it had been taken by an opposing army was uh dating back to the hun so you know it was very very uh ancient city with a lot of military history and whoever occupied Metz essentially controlled that region of Europe. At this point in time, it was the Germans. So Metz was kind of a screeching halt to this liberating France. And it was also pretty much the last stronghold before getting into Germany. So that's when he was called to actually fight in action. And their objective was to create a diversion so that the German army would be distracted on them, building this bridge north of Metz, and then a larger army would be able to cross on another bridge, and then they'd have all the heavy artillery and everything like that, and they'd be able to come in and have a chance at taking the city. In retrospect, it was a a suicide mission. Unfortunately, um, Mother Nature chooses no side in war, and the night they crossed the river, uh, it was torrential downpour, flooding, Their river got washed out, and they were completely isolated. And so they dug trenches in on the, um, the opposite bank of the river. And this is in November in France. So it's just, you know, at nights it's freezing all day long. You're just sitting in water. And what happened is uh, a lot of people started getting this condition called trench foot, which essentially is your skin just starts to rot from being saturated in water. And So that was something that he also got. They fought for days in this condition to the point where they found a small village that had been totally abandoned when the Germans occupied and they took refuge in a barn. The Germans found out that they were in this town and they just started going house to house, raiding each place and just torching it. He lost two of the, the main people that he had gone through basic training with. We had a lot of photos with him and these other two people. Then he was also captured during that time. That kind of marked the end of his experience as a soldier and the beginning of his experience as a prisoner. It was an interesting time to be a prisoner because earlier on, if you became a prisoner of war, you know, you were put into a camp and the Germans tried to maintain as much organization as possible. That means keeping people in one place. It's just logistically much easier. Earlier in the war, they were adhering more to um, some of the standards set by the Geneva Convention. So if you were a prisoner, you could write home saying, I'm in this camp in this town. I'm still alive. You know, I hope to see you soon. Letters like that. So at least your family would know that you're not being tortured and you're you're capable of writing and just getting that.
2: Were those some of the documents that you have or no?
1: No. So by the time he got captured, the day after he was captured, his the reinforcements arrived and then... That week they liberated Metz. Uh, So it was a huge turning point in the war. The Germans were kind of at that point on their back foot, which meant they didn't care nearly as much about the prisoners of the enemy in terms of him being able to write home and even being kept in one place. That was all thrown out the window. He was marched from camp to camp, you know, put on a train, sent across the country, you know, all of these things that. When you ask, um, you know, about the traditional prisoner of war experience, people say, "No, no, they they wouldn't have done that." It was they were they were very organized and methodical about how they kept people. and And then you, the more you talk to them, you they say, "Oh, but that was okay." In the final five months of the war, all of that was thrown out, uh, and they did some things that were, you know, totally uncharacteristic. And one of those things was um, he had a paper that said he was in a concentration camp. And everyone we talked to said that's impossible. They never would have mixed uh, prisoners of war with soldiers with, they called them political prisoners, but essentially the concentration camp inmates. That was always kind of a big mystery in his story. It's like it didn't make sense because he wasn't a storyteller. He didn't care to glorify any of this. He didn't tell anybody about it. So why would he say he was somewhere he wasn't? we kind of got to the point where we thought maybe it was just a product of you know him not really communicating his experience well something lost in translation of time and uh, other people kind of taking his story and glorifying it people like telling a good story so maybe they were using his experience of you know Silvio he he saw the worst of it he was even in a concentration camp it wasn't until we got to germany we were following his track and we got to this camp, uh, it was called Stalag 10B, and it's in a tiny little village called Sandbossel. We started talking to the camp historian, and that's when we learned that two weeks before liberation, that that was the point where the Germans, they didn't want people to see what they were doing. So they started evacuating concentration camps and essentially destroying all the records and things like that. And they evacuated a concentration camp near Hamburg, and they marched 9,500 people from that camp to the camp that Silvio was at. For him, he thought it was a concentration camp because uh, everything they knew you know, about what was going on, um, he was learning about it in real time. And for him to be in that camp, and all of a sudden one day these prisoners arrive, and their condition was, you know, it was described as the worst possible condition without being dead. Um, standing to prevent dying, you know, because as soon as they laid down, they they just wouldn't have the strength to ever get back up again. It was just a, a crazy moment to realize that he was he was telling the truth. And that piece did check out. And it wasn't, you know, per se the the traditional concentration camp. Uh in that moment they had combined the two. And it was a really rare thing that there was, you know, to our knowledge, there weren't any other camps where something like that happened.
2: So, was he actually liberated, or did they just kind of abandon the camp?
1: Towards the end of the war, the head officer in charge realized the inevitable. They were losing. They were. It was only a matter of time before the Allies liberated this camp. He didn't want to be accountable for having American prisoners at this camp. They were being held in such horrible conditions that he knew that he would be held accountable. So... Two weeks before liberation, he arranged for the Americans to be marched to another camp that was eight miles away. And that camp is where my grandpa was um, finally liberated from. And it was the Welsh Guard that came into that area and and, um, his liberators. And then they also then went and liberated the Sandbosal camp as well.
2: Well, as you're saying, you know, how uh, your grandfather was living it in real time and and we're looking back on it, and just it just reminded me of what we're going through right now, you know, with the pandemic and how how rapidly changing information is, and how different our experiences in Wyoming versus certainly New York City mm-hmm. you know that forms our each of our reality, yeah, and that's really about documentaries is how they can give you just a really great slice of life
1: one of the things that. Actually, it's a a quote from the film is that essentially this idea of freedom, when you're in prison or when you're, you know, confined and even like quarantined like we are now, the thing that keeps you going is the hope that one day, you know, you'll be free again. In Los Angeles, we've been, I think we're on month three or month four, I'm not even sure, where you're just kind of confined to your house and you're not able to go out and do all these things that, you know, the, the reason why you live here to be able to go up into the mountains the freedom of being able to have these interactions even with our neighbor has been taken away so but the thing that keeps you going is that you know one day we'll be able to do that again one day we'll be able to you know go over and and see the the baby that your neighbor just had and and be able to give them a gift and cook them a meal and that hope keeps you going but also the memory of what freedom used to be like drives you mad and for him it was this idea of, you know, the freedom of being back home in America, that's what kept him going. But also that idea of America drove you mad because that's not your day-to-day life. Your day-to-day life is a prison camp and you have to convince yourself that this is normal. This is my life. If I think too much about, you know, how free I was in America and and what my fiance is doing right now, and that's the type of thought that makes you think, I don't know if I can get through this.
2: You know, I... I lived away from Wyoming my whole life and just visited in the summer. So I didn't grow up here like you did. I could honestly say that it is the place that my heart calls home. You know, I think a lot of places, geographies call you, but I think once you have that, you know, it is such a draw. It is just as strong as the human relationships that you have here.
1: Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I think that's very prevalent in the film, too, because this theme of place. And that's what really pulled me to, you know, go to his house, to be in his house. And there were so many things about just, you know, being there and the way that, you know, the the wind blows. And that was such a characteristic thing of Rock Springs. If it wasn't windy, that was like a rainy day, you know, but that, that informs how that place is. And it affects how you hear silence because my silence growing up was wind. And then, the train coming by and things like that. And you realize how unique that is when somebody from the outside comes. And so I remember we were sitting on my grandpa's porch with a friend um, who didn't grow up in rock Springs. And we we're sitting there like, what is that sound? I was like, what are you talking about? And then I I listened and sure enough, there's like a blaring train noise that is just like, it's always happening because the train tracks are a couple blocks away. And, you know, that's a major Union Pacific route. And they they honk their horn as they're coming through. They're they're linking up. They're changing things. It's just this constant, like, loud, clanking, industrial noise. And it just, to me, it was white noise.
2: It's even comforting. Like, my grandma lived right by the railroad track in Grayville. And when I got an apartment in Denton, Texas, the landlord said, well, you know, I do want you to know the train is pretty close by. Some people complain about it, you know. Are you kidding me? That would be great comfort to me because that just reminds <laughs> me of at my grandma's house. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so little things like that, you just, it slowly becomes, uh, you know.
0: Part of your psyche, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, is there anything else you would want people to know about your story and your project?
1: Uh, I think the kind of the takeaway that I would like people to know about this, um, and it applies to to Wyoming or wherever you're at, but, you know, we're in this digital age where, you know, everybody basically has a sophisticated computer in their pocket. Whatever that story is that's close to you, it doesn't have to be World War Two. Everybody has lived through something. And maybe the reason why they haven't told anybody is because they haven't thought that anyone's listening. The history that we learn about in school, you know, that's, I call it big history. It's, you know, World War Two. that's big history. We learn about, you know, kind of the, the Pearl Harbor, the D-Day, the Holocaust, things like that. But then there's this thing called small history, and that's the personal stories. And that's, you know, being able to talk to somebody that was there and asking them, you know, what was their version of it? And it's happening, you know, now, today, with the virus, everything, Um, trying to tell people that there is such a small barrier of entry to document these stories. It's just a matter of listening. That's kind of how we maintain this history of, of who we are as a people.
0: Right, and how we show the little stories within the big story. That's really what the big story is made up of. I have some questions that I ask all of my guests.
2: I have three questions. What's something that people driving through Wyoming may not realize?
1: I think one of the big things that they don't realize is that tourism in Wyoming can be so much more than what the world thinks it is. You know, The national parks are beautiful. There's so much up there. Uh, If you haven't climbed in the Tetons... I think that's that's an experience that, you know, is second to none. But I think the real tourism of Wyoming is taking a beat, stopping in these small towns, trying to connect with people, pull yourself out of your screen and talk to the people next to you because one thing about Wyoming that is so interesting is the amount of people that are willing to open up to you if you're willing to open up to them. And as soon as you, you know, leave your judgments and everything at the door and just try to talk to people and hear their story. And what I found is so cool about Wyoming is these small cafes and bars and things like that, where people are willing to give you the time of day. And that's the real stories and like the magic of Wyoming is.
2: I totally agree. What do you think is the hardest thing about living in Wyoming? I
1: think the hardest part of growing up in Wyoming is that you don't realize how good it is when you're there. And there's a feeling that you should be somewhere else or that, you know, bigger things are happening somewhere else. Um, You know, your impact is, is kind of where you focus your energy.
2: Another question that I ask everyone is just in general, what do you love about Wyoming?
1: I think for me, it all comes down to just, there's so much to explore, whether it's the landscape uh, or like we've been talking this whole time, the people, the history, the the folk history is incredible.
2: I'm super excited for your project and I wish you all the very, very best. I know it's going to have a lot of heart in it because it means a lot to you. And I just know your grandpa would be so proud.
1: Yeah, well, it's been quite the journey. and I guess it's just begun, but uh, thanks for letting me talk about it. It's something I'm passionate about. So anytime I can let other people know his story and what we've been doing, it's just a great experience.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: All right. Well, I I look 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 forward to more Wyoming stories in the future.
0: Again, thank you, Mark, and thank you, listeners, for your patience as I grapple with the tech side of this project. The sound will get better eventually, right? I hope so. And now for the segment on Wyoming wildlife. There are seven species of rabbits and hares native to Wyoming, and today I picked the absolute cutest one to share with you. I associate rabbits with World War II because my dad said that rabbit was their main meat as a kid. I imagine that had to do with the after effects of the Great Depression, but also, you know, rationing during the war. Apparently, they ate a lot of it, and dad was not a fan. I'm pretty sure they wouldn't have bothered hunting today's Wyoming wildlife, which is the pygmy rabbit. It's the smallest species in North America, weighing less than a pound. These perfect little fur balls have tiny tails and short ears that are furry on the inside. I just want to just snuggle that fur. They live in the sagebrush steppes of southwestern Wyoming where they make their burrows at the base of sagebrush and guess what they eat? Mostly sagebrush. These little cuties are in decline, unfortunately, and considered vulnerable And that is due to loss of habitat because of invasive grasses. I'm looking at you, cheatgrass, wildfires, prescribed burns, as well as oil industry activity. I put in the show notes a really informative summary of their conservation status in Wyoming, so check that out. Last is the out of the box segment where I highlight a town or place just outside of the box shaped border of Wyoming. In keeping with our World War II theme, I present to you North Platte, Nebraska. It's a great place to visit if you're coming in from the east and well worth a stop on this World War II tour. It's on I 80, about three and a half hours east of Cheyenne, where our World War tour of Wyoming started. The reason I picked North Platte was because of the North Platte Canteen. I found this story just so sweet. In December of 1941, North Platte residents had heard that Company D of the Nebraska National Guard was going to be coming through town and would stop at their train depot. So they decided to gather at the train depot and give Company D of Nebraska National Guard a big surprise hometown welcome. The troop train stopped, and it was Company D, but the surprise was on the town because out came out Company D of the Kansas National Guard. And on the North Platte website, it says, after an awkward silence, the townsfolk surged forward to share their gifts with the Kansas boys. After all, they were someone's children. That's just so sweet. This one-time event turned into a big deal. The whole town got into opening a permanent canteen at the depot to feed and to bring up the spirits of the troops that were coming through. This whole effort lasted 54 months, involved 12,000 volunteers, and served more than 6 million servicemen and women over the course of the war. Today, large groups can still have that canteen experience, starting with a visit to the museum and then a dinner with items that would have been included on the canteen menu. And I'm imagining lots of delicious pies. While researching North Platte, I saw a very familiar face in the North Platte Visitor Information logo, somebody who I associate with Wyoming, and that's Buffalo Bill. Well, it turns out that William Cody was originally from North Platte, Nebraska, so there's another Wyoming connection. North Platte has a lot of fun stuff to do, and here are some things that caught my attention on their website. I mentioned Buffalo Bill. You can go see the Buffalo Bill Ranch State Historic Park, but also what sounded fun to me was floating down the river on an empty cattle tank, organized by like a local outfitter. And the third thing is something I actually have done in North Platte, and that is visiting the Sandhill Crane migration in the spring. It is absolutely amazing to see these huge majestic birds. I'd like to go back and book a tour because they take you to the viewing blinds that get you way, way, way closer to get better pictures. So it's time to close the gate on this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you to the folks who have emailed or messaged me with feedback and encouragement. Let me know if you decide to take my virtual tour and turn it into a reality. Post your pics to Instagram and hashtag it, WyomingMy307. A big, big grazie to Mark Pedri for sharing his story. I cannot wait to see that documentary. Please follow him on Instagram and Facebook to get updates on the project. And again, links are on the website for that. That website address is wyomingmy307.blogspot.com and you can find links to the museums, places, reference information for what was covered today and past episodes. If you have questions or suggestions, email wyomingmy307 at gmail.com and make sure to follow Instagram, wyomingmy307, all one word. Happy trails to you! Until we meet again!